Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Where Do We Begin? We're delighted to have you on board if you're a new listener or an old listener returning to the show. Either way, my name's Harper Pestinger. Usually, I will welcome my good friend Jackson Georgie, the co-host, for the intro and the outro, but I'm afraid he's not here for those parts. But rest assured, he's here for the interview. But speaking of the interview, it's an absolutely great interview. It's with the greatest double trap shooter of all time. His name is Russell Mark. And whether you've heard of double trap shooting or not, uh, you might be not shooting experts at all, like Jackson and I, or you might be the most avid shooter in Australia. Who knows? But either way, you'll definitely enjoy this episode with Russell Mark. He's had some amazing athletic achievements, clearly, as he would being the greatest double trap shooter of all time. And you get to hear about all of those and some other really fascinating and funny stories in this episode. We're absolutely delighted to bring it to you. So I reckon we just should get straight into it. Now, our guest today, uh, I can say he's officially the greatest double trap shooter of all time. He's won 39 Australian Open Championships. He's in the Sport Australia Hall of Fame and he's uh, done the little achievement of being an Olympic gold medalist. And another thing, no Aussie without a horse has competed in more Summer Olympic Games than he. So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Russell Mark to the show today. How are you, Matt? Hey, I use that line on Andrew Hoy all the time, the guy that went to seven Olympic Games. He went to seven, but his horses have only gone to one. I mean, how does that work? I was like, I'm going to use that line as well, Mark. Yeah. But uh, how you been, mate? Are you in lockdown? Uh, I heard you out there in Hopper's Crossing. So yeah, that's... Sadly, sadly, I own a couple of pubs out here and we've been locked down for quite some time, sadly. Um, if you know of anyone that wants to buy a couple of pubs in Hopper's Crossing, send them my way. I run a takeaway business and a drive-through bottle shop in the pubs now. That's about all we're doing. But hopefully, hopefully soon we'll be able to get people back inside. But they're both gaming venues. I think it's going to be until the end of November before we can really start to operate again. Yeah, it's such a shame being locked down here. I think we're all going a little bit stir crazy. Um, Harper just staying at home doing all this study. Well, I know Harper hasn't been to the hairdresser in quite some time. I can pick that up, that's for sure. I'm very, yep. very impressed with his hair, dude. <laughs> yeah, it's growing very long. We established that in our little pre-pod uh, chat. That was good. But, um, mate, so... I think lots of the listeners wouldn't even know what double trap shooting is. So before we rip into the real stuff, can you just explain to us briefly what double trap shooting is and how it works? Um, it's basically you get two targets that are released at the same time. You don't know exactly where they're going and you've got about seven tenths of a second to hit them both before they get out of range. We use 12-gauge shotguns, as all the Olympic um, shotgun events do. Um yeah, and it's it's really a test of your reflexes nearly as much as is a test of your marksmanship skills. So I was lucky enough to go to six Olympics in total and four of them I shot in the double trap event and four of them I shot in the Olympic trap event, which is one of the other three disciplines that were on offer back then. Um, and in two Olympics I shot in both disciplines, which was, yeah, that, that's hard work. <laughs> so how would you get into the sport? Um through, I guess, family, I was pretty keen on football growing up in Ballarat and I rolled my ankle at footy training one week and was going to be out for the weekend. I went down and watched the kids play uh, and right behind the oval that they were playing on in Sebastopol in Ballarat 
there was a clay target range and my father and brother had done a bit of clay target shooting. You've got someone popping behind you on the door there. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Um, and behind the range that I was um, behind the football oval, um, there was a guy shooting clay targets that knew my father and he offered me a shot. And it's just one of those things, I could hit things with a gun. Sort of never really been what you'd class as a gun enthusiast, but I've used a firearm as a sporting tool, I guess, and that, that's how we view them. Um, I know that there's a lot of people anti-gun, but for us, it's a tool of our sport. Yeah, it's just like um, archery or something, I suppose. Like, I mean, you could theoretically kill someone with your bow and arrow, but, yeah, it's just... It's guess it's fun. You'll find, Harper, that most of the people that use firearms for sport will all agree that the firearms laws on criminals that use firearms as weapons should be greater. And yeah. it's no different if you get out of this interview today and drive down High Street in Preston at 150 kilometres an hour, you're using your car as a weapon, even though it wasn't intended to be one. And that's how we look at firearms. I mean, you can use them as a weapon, absolutely, but 99.9% of the people out there don't use them as weapons. They use them as a sporting tool. Yeah, exactly. I agree with that. Jackson, you too? Yeah. yeah. It's totally fair enough. <laughs> but um, now what I've got to ask about uh, when you're first getting into shooting and just, I guess, the training regime in general. Um, so I think people, it's a fairly niche sport. Uh, so how do you train like without a gun? So like, is it just aside from doing like shooting itself, are there training methods to use like without yeah, the gun itself? It, it is a good question. I'll guarantee you if you find someone that's good at table tennis or good at badminton, they'll be a good clay target shooter because it is a pure hand-to-eye coordination sport. There's really there's no reason for me to think either you or Jackson couldn't be the next Olympic champions just looking at you. There's no body shape that's ideal. It's, it's uh, At Olympic level, it's 90% mental. Everybody can shoot a gun straight at that level, but it's how people react under pressure. And it's really it's a mind game sport. If you can train your mind to do the same under pressure as you do at practice, it's really easy uh, because it's not like golf. It's not a sport that requires a lot of technical knowledge. You know, we're, in golf, you have to be able to have 200 different types of shots to get around the golf course. You've got to have all of them. In, in shooting, once you've perfected the one technique, it's good pretty much to go. But doing that when your heart rate's at 100 and beat, 180 beats a minute is quite difficult sometimes. So you did pick up shooting and in your first Australian Open, you set a, a record, Australian record. How'd that go, come about? Yeah, look, I was a kid. I was 16 and um, I went to a novice competition when I was 14, missed my last target of the event and it really upset me that much. I went back to this same novice competition about three months later and won it and that got me into a state sort of final and I won the state championship when I was 15 and that sort of got me interested enough to try my hand at a national title, which sadly for me in 1980, the national title was over in Perth, but I went over there and I won it. I won an open Australian championship at 16 and broke the Australian record of the most hits in succession at the time. And a company called Winchester, a famous um, company in the firearms industry, decided they'd sponsor me. And 
I shot for another couple of years and then stopped. I went to RMIT and did a degree in business studies, majoring in real estate valuations. And when I finished, I got the urge to try and make the Olympic team. So by the time 88 rolled around, I was ready to go. And, you know, the rest is history from there. But I actually never competed for Australia as a junior. I never went overseas. And and I'm probably the last person ever to have done that that's won the Olympic Games because pretty much everybody else starts as a junior. But even though I won that title as a junior, I then stopped. And my father was pretty big on me getting an education before I had a, a sporting career, which, you know, I'm forever grateful for now. Yeah, so... Obviously, being so young uh, in that Australian Open in 1980, only 16, and uh, never been at any other Australian Opens, I guess, uh, did you have any idea that you were so good and could just beat all the competition at such, such a young age? Well, no, not really. Um, nobody else did that day. And the way the Australian Open Championship works is that everybody goes to shoot at 50 targets. And, you know, there might be like six, 700 people enter the, the Open Championship. So that day, all the people that hit 50 out of 50 then go into a sudden death shoot-off and they file through until there's only one person left. Um, And on that day, after about another 50 targets in the shoot-off, it was down to myself and Australia's greatest ever shooter, a guy called Doug Smith. He's passed away now, but he was from Queensland. And there was only two of us left at 100 targets. But it went to 349 before we had a result. And... Nobody really knows what they're like until they're put under that type of pressure. And obviously I handled the pressure okay that day and it meant a lot to a lot of people that at 16, if I could handle that pressure, imagine what it'd be like if I had a bit more exposure and particularly to international events. But I I didn't want to go overseas and shoot. It wasn't something that I really wanted to do. I still love cricket and I still love football. And they were the sports I had fun in. Shooting was hard work, but... You know, I, after uni, the allure of the Olympic Games was big and I was never going to play full forward for Carlton, unfortunately. I just didn't grow tall enough to do that. Um, so the only way I could pursue a sport and get to the highest level was shooting. And a lot of people are like me. They're, they're not really gun-mad enthusiasts, but they're good at hitting stuff that's thrown through the air. And my teammate in 96 when I won, Michael Diamond, he won the the trap event the same year I won the double trap one. He's the same. He really wasn't good at any other sport. He couldn't catch a ball if you threw it to him properly, but throw something up in the air and the guy could just hit it. And one of you two guys might be exactly the same, but until I get you to a shooting range, you never really know who's going to be good or bad. No, I went to the national championships again in 1984 and made what's called the Australian Training Squad, which was the top six ranked people, which um, that that was a difficult squad to get in. And because I was still reasonably young in 1984, um, I was too old to shoot in the junior category, but they thought I was young enough to try and there was some grant money left over from the 1982 Commonwealth Games and they gave me a grant to go over to Europe and compete in an event in Italy, an event called the Grand Prix of Nations, which at the time was the world's biggest um, shooting event in the discipline that I shot. And I shot pretty well in it. I finished in the top 10 and the rest was history. They thought, well, you've got to take this a bit more seriously. So then I 
had a real crack in earnest of making the 86 Commonwealth Games team and I was finished the first emergency. I missed out. But it really, it really made me be aware that, okay, I can go to the next level here. And I made the 88 Olympic team and then, you know, went on to win the Olympic Games. But you've got to get exposed in this sport to people overseas. The best shooters live in the United States or Europe, one or the other. And you can beat the Australians till the cows come home, but you've got to be able to beat the Italians and the Americans. And once I started doing that, then I realised it was no barrier to entry that I actually lived in Australia. But I did a lot of time on aeroplanes, I can tell you. I'm, I am really happy that I'm not travelling anymore. Anyone that thinks travelling all the time is fun, they need to try it for 20 years. It soon wears you out. And I was really happy in the end not to go overseas and I ended up doing most of my training here. And I was lucky enough that I got to the stage where people would want to come and train with me here in in Werribee. So I cut out a lot of the time I was spending away from the family. Now, you mentioned briefly there uh, the 88 Olympics and obviously a massive, massive step up, uh, the biggest stage, I guess. Um, so what did uh, what measures did you take to step up your training level in the years um, looking forward to those Olympic Games? Yeah, it's another good question because, you know, I need to probably fast forward that question another four years. In uh, in 88, I went to the Olympics and I was completely out of my depth, even though I was competitive. And I, I finished, I think I shot 191 out of 200 and 193 made the final, I think it was. So I was only two points out of the final, but two points is a lot. You know, I think I finished in 12th place. I think 12th or 15th it might have even been. But in 92, when I went back to Barcelona, I then, in that period of time, won a World Cup competition in Los Angeles. And, you know, I was way up in the world rankings. And in my mind, I thought I was a chance. And I went perilously close in Barcelona. I missed the final by a point. Um, And it was a really tight Olympic Games. But I got counted all the way back to ninth place. And that hurt. Um, and I remember sooking about it for a couple of weeks after I got home and then went, went up to Canberra and sat down with a guy at the Institute of Sport and we mapped out my life in the next four years, every training period, every rest period, every competition period, and I had my life on an A4 sheet of paper, um, every, every goal that I'd set, and it didn't take long. After I did that, I won the World Championship in 94 and, and went to the 96 Olympics as favourite to win and, and won it and won it pretty easily. And I often think you need to learn in life from the times you don't succeed. Anyone can be a great winner, but it's very hard to learn something when you get defeated. And, you know, by 92, I'd been to two Olympic Games and hadn't succeeded. And not too many people get a chance at the third Olympic Games, but I was lucky enough that I did get a chance and made the most of it. And the things I learned from losing were far more important than anything I've ever learned from winning. And then you'll find that with all the really great champions in sport. They all have the one attribute. You never hear a champion ever make an excuse. They learn from their mistakes so they don't need to make excuses. But the people that lose and then they go and blame their coaches or the crowd or the ammunition they're using or their guns or the weather, those people will never win. If you're an excuse maker, find another sport. This isn't the sport for you. It is wholly and solely everything between your ears. And if you can accept that you can lose and you can accept that you'll learn from your losses, you've got a chance to finally succeed. 
that is great advice to anyone listening out there. Um, I want to go back a little bit, back to your first Olympics. Being so still young, I guess, in the sport, um, how was that experience going to your first Olympics, honestly? Like, I know a lot of people only go to one, but you've been to a few after that, but your first, how was that to you? Yeah, it's like getting tossed in a deep end of the pool and not really knowing if you can swim because everyone dreams of going to their first Olympics and coming home with a gold medal. And for me, obviously, I dreamt of that. And obviously, all my friends and family thought, yeah, you can do it. But there were just too many people in the world that were better than me. But the experience was fantastic. There's nothing in sport like going to an opening ceremony of an Olympic Games. And you know, the 88 Olympics, uh, you guys wouldn't have even been born, I doubt. But we had to wear these long, dry-as-a-bone trench coats on a sole summer day in Korea that was 30 degrees and the humidity was unbelievable. And whoever come up with that smart idea to wear that, <laughs> I'd love to meet them, I can tell you. I'd really love to put them in that trench coat for two hours because that's the most vivid memory I've got. I've never sweated so much in all my life. But the the experience I got from it was fantastic and obviously I stayed for the entire Olympics. It's probably the only Olympics I stayed from start to finish at because I think once you've gone to an Olympic Games and you haven't succeeded, the most loneliest place on earth is the Olympic Village. And I learned pretty quickly that maybe as soon as your event's over, it might be time to go home. So that was the only one I spent the entire Olympics at, which a lot of people might find odd, but you put so much mental energy into the Olympics that you're not there to actually watch the other sports. You're there to try and do as good as you can for yourself. And once the last shot's fired, I think that you just want to get your life back again. And after 88, I, I come home at nearly all of them, I think. Yeah, now the year of the Olympics after that, 1992, uh, in September of that year, uh, I believe you hit 1,177 targets in a row, which broke your own record. So just talk to us about the great form you were in, the great mentality you must have had, like just hitting absolutely everything. Yeah, look, it was an unusual time. I'd flown home from Barcelona early. And there was a competition up in Tamworth, a two-day event, which had a lot of money on it, a lot of good prizes. And this was only a matter of weeks after the Olympics. Um, And the last person you ever want to have shoot against in a shooting competition is someone that just missed out on winning the Olympics because you're going to take your anger out on somebody. And I took it out on a group of people up at Tamworth. And, um, yeah, I shot 1,177 in a row, which was the first person ever to shoot 1,000 in a row. Um, yeah, and I, I, I nearly felt sorry for the people at Tamworth up there because I, I think I was just angry and I just took it out on them. And I had a couple of days over a weekend I just couldn't miss. Um, and everything I learned at Barcelona, I, I absolutely took out on those people in Tamworth. And that was really the then first stepping stone for me to succeed four years later. Yeah, um, in events like that uh, in say Tamworth or wherever it is in Australia, do you feel like uh, your competitors are kind of like, or we could get an absolutely massive scalp here, like beat Russell Mark, one of the, or the greatest trap, double trap shooter of all time. And like, do you reckon they were more motivated because of that? 
Yeah, it's another good question and one I probably haven't really discussed honestly with anyone ever, so you'll probably get a first here. But <laughs> after 96, I, I really never, ever shot at my best ever again. And that's a stupid thing to say because I, I went to another three Olympic Games and won world championships and set world records. But the reason I say that is after I won in 96, I never ever had the desire to succeed like that ever again. And one of the reasons was because I used to go to some of these competitions half-heartedly and because I was sponsored by a couple of big firearms companies, so they expected you to go to some of these competitions. But when you don't turn up really wanting to destroy the competition like I did in Tamworth that weekend, it's easy to miss one and then you'll lose and then you'll get sent the Monday paper from out at Broken Hill or Cobar or Mount Gambier or wherever where it says Johnny Smith beats Olympic champion, Johnny favourite to win next Olympic Games. And I got sick of that (laughs) because it is the nature of the sport. Once you miss, you're going to lose and everyone's going to miss. And I probably got sick of going to these little country competitions, even national competitions here in Australia, where people just expected you to win and it's never quite that easy. And really after 96, I didn't win a great deal more national championships even. And I'll guarantee if you spoke to Michael Diamond, he would say exactly the same thing, that if you look at maybe our national records, at times you'd think our international records were better. But the reason they were better is because you tried harder and put the effort in. And I did feel that, what you suggested, that people always wanted you to go because they'd get you when you're not really putting 100% in and you'd miss and then forever then they're the guy that beat the Olympic champion and <laughs> seriously, um, get a life. But uh, that's the nature of the sport and I've probably started 10,000 kids' career when they've beaten me someday but 9,999 of those I've never heard of again but they're still living on the day they beat me and that's the great part of our sport. Um, so we will get into the 96 Olympics. You've obviously failed at the last two. How sweet was it to get the gold in 96? Yeah, it was good because it was the only part of my sporting resume that I needed filled. You know, I'd won all the other events. You know, I'd won World Cups and World Cup finals and, and World Championships, but I hadn't won an Olympic Games. And in our sport, I don't care who you are, unless you've won an Olympic gold medal, your sporting resume is not complete. I could have won the next 20 World Championships and you guys wouldn't be talking to me today. I'll guarantee you, you're only talking to me because I won an Olympic Games. And I felt that as much as probably you guys did researching my or someone's resume because you're looking for an Olympic gold medalist. And I was very much aware of that. Once you've won it, though, and again, it's probably something I haven't discussed too often, but you realise in your life how insignificant that winning an Olympic gold medal can be. I mean, it's just a sporting event. And I would hate people to judge my life based on winning an Olympic gold medal. I think I've done far bigger things in my life than anything that I've ever done in sport. But it opened up doors for me for me to do other things. And that's the thing I'm eternally grateful for, for winning and Olympics. I wouldn't have had the business opportunities I would have had. I probably wouldn't have even had the personal opportunities I've had unless you've got one of those Olympic gold medals. And stupidly enough, I haven't seen that gold medal in over 20 years. It sits in a museum at the MCG with um, all my other memorabilia and it's not something that I, I physically 
think anything about. I don't, when people come around, everybody that comes to my house wants to say, can I see your gold medal? Well, if you want to see, you have to go to the MCG because that's about the last, and I haven't held it in that long. But I, when they opened the Sports sports Hall of Fame Museum a couple of, it was last year, I went and saw it. And that was the first time I've actually seen it in 20 odd years. So it's not something, it's a material thing, but it's something that'll live on in my head, obviously, forever. Yeah, so I guess you just decide to donate it to the National Sports Museum? Well, <laughs> that's a really, uh, that's an interesting subject too. I actually donated it to my eldest daughter, Holly. And when Holly turns 21 and she just turned 22, but I put it to the, the Hall of Fame Museum or the MCG Gallery of Sport Museum, um, and at 21, Holly could go and get it out. And when Michael Diamond sold off his two gold medals not that long ago, I think he got about 70 grand each for them. Holly saw the newspaper article that Michael sold his medals and worked out 70 grand. She said to me, Dad, that spells BMW to me. <laughs> so she didn't go and get it, and I'd be very disappointed if she did, but she has got the right to go to the MCG Museum, have proof of ownership and turn it into a BMW, but she won't do that. Um, it's one of those things that I'm proud to have, and I feel for Michael that he financially got strained enough that he needed to sell them, but if I ever get that strained, I hope it's not. That's something that I have to do. So in 1996, you became the Australian Sportsperson of the Year. How was that for you? Yeah, surprising because um, they don't give those awards to shooters too often, and that was from the the Sportsman's um, Association of Australia gave me that award. And that, that was good because I think they treated all sports equal. Like you go to a lot of the Institute of Sport Awards and they'll give it to their high-profile athletes because they want the publicity themselves. And I think for me to win that award meant a lot to me because everyone was sort of judged equally and they'd probably followed my progress through the sport and finally for an Australian to win an Olympics at that level. Um, yeah, it, it meant a lot. So, uh, again, though, when you start your career, you don't ever think about winning those sort of awards, but when they finally give it to you, you do appreciate Now, the Sydney Olympics probably didn't turn out quite as you planned in terms of results, but before we get onto that, can you just talk to us about the whole build-up and uh, the home Olympics and all of that kind of stuff? Yeah, it's a massive advantage for us to have a home Olympics. I, I trained for a full year at the range at Sydney before those games. And by 2000, I was probably on the downhill slide. I was 36 and, you know, I was going out the back door in a lot of people's eyes. But Early in 2000, they had a World Cup event at that range and I won it um, and won it pretty easily. So it got got me spurred on again and I spent a lot of time training there and ended up getting a guy out from England who was the world's best shooter in 2000, a guy called Richard Folds, and he ended up coming to my range here in Melbourne and we trained together for a month and then went to Sydney to compete against each other and yeah, in the end, sadly, he beat me in a sudden death shoot-off for the gold medal. I never should have invited him to Melbourne. But the reality is, unless he was there, I wouldn't have even been shooting off for a medal. Um, it really helps in our sport to shoot against people of that calibre. And when you're shooting against people that are better than you, you get better. And that lead-up time for me 
It was great because I stopped going overseas. I spent most of 2000 in Australia, and that's a big advantage, not to have to go to Europe, not to have to go to the United States. All I had to do was get on a plane and fly one hour to Sydney. And the Sydney range was a difficult one. The background was terrible. And when the Europeans and the Italians arrived there to shoot, they hated it which meant a lot to me. The fact that they spent most of their time complaining about it meant that I didn't have to worry about beating them on the day. But this guy, Folds, from England, he'd spent a bit of time there and he knew what he was getting himself in for him. We, we shot pretty well on the day. I think I shot an Olympic record in qualification and I shot one perfect round of 50 out of 50. And you don't do that too often at the Olympic Games. It was the only one I ever shot. The only 50 out of 50 was in Sydney. Um, yeah, the day didn't turn out quite how I wanted it to, but as I've always said, if the worst thing that I've ever done in my life is win an Olympic silver medal, I've got a pretty good life. Um, and, you know, now I probably heard a lot at the time. You never want to finish second at the Olympics, but finish ninth, as I did in Barcelona, hurts a lot more. To have to watch the final from the grandstand is the, is the most gut-wrenching place to watch an Olympic final from, watching six guys that you just competed against all day, then getting all the accolades in the final would have hurt a lot more. But, yeah, it was it was a great time for Australia, the Sydney Olympics, and I was proud to be part of it. I was on the Australian Olympic Committee at the time as an athlete's representative, so I had a lot to do with the build-up to it and, and the conditions the athletes lived in and how we got to compete. I had some, some big input into it. I'm very proud to have been a part of it. They did a good job. So... Um you did mention all your other Olympics. You left as soon as your event finished. Was it hard to get away from this one, seeing it as it was in Australia, or did you have to go somewhere else? No, I flew back to Melbourne for a little bit of it. I, I did go back home for a bit and then flew back for the closing ceremony. I wanted to be part of that, and that was the great part about it being in Sydney. Jackson, I could fly home um, and spend a few days off. I watched Kathy Freeman win her gold medal, then I think I flew home for a few days because the Olympics is 16 days, and we were at the start of it. You know, we're, we're all done by day three. Um and, you know, they say what happens in the Olympic Village needs to stay in the Olympic Village. And I was um, – <laughs> and my wife, unfortunately, knew all too much what happened in the Olympic Village. So there's no way she was going to leave me up there on my own, I can tell you. So <laughs> I flew home, did the right thing, was a family man, and then flew back. But um, it, it's, it was a great time for Australia. It's something Australia needs right now. Um, Australia's never been as divided ever as what we are at the moment. If we had a Sydney Olympics coming up, that might be the thing we need to unite us back together. Yeah. Uh, now, going on to the next Olympic year, 2004, you didn't compete. But in that year, you coached uh, Rajavadan Singh Rathore, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Um, so... Why did you coach him and not compete? How did that decision um, come about? No, I didn't make the team. Um, during the trials, I had a malfunction in a gun, blew my gun up that I won all my stuff with, both at Sydney and um, Atlanta. I blew the barrel up, and that's not a, an excuse because you've got to take responsibility of your equipment, and I was leading the trials by a considerable amount. Didn't really have a, a, a great backup gun and then got caught and missed out on the team. And I went over there as an athlete liaison officer also for the Olympic Committee, but I took the job coaching um, Raja Varden Rathor. 
who's now the Minister of Sport in India. I mean, his Olympic medal did him wonders. He got lots more out of it than I got out of mine. I'd hate to think what his income is being the Minister of Sport in India now, but it, it was India's first ever individual medal. Um, so it catapulted his career and he got into politics. And um, it was an unusual time being on the other side of the fence. And the moment I got there, because I thought I was retired, I wasn't really planning on going to any more. But when I got there, first thing I did when I come home from Athens was start training again. Because if ever you think you're retired, you need to go to one of these events and you can see why people make comebacks. Because I was out of, I was in the wrong side of the fence and come back and then won a gold medal at the Commonwealth Games in in Melbourne. I was so happy that I started shooting again. Yeah, so I was just about to ask that. Uh, the home Commonwealth Olympics, so your home in Melbourne, how was that special for you compared to the Sydney Olympics? Uh, Commonwealth Games in Melbourne was a fantastic time for us because obviously they had it on a range that I'd shot at all my life. So, And it was another range that I, I found pretty easy to shoot on. And... Um, Myself and my teammate, Craig Trimbath, who um, we won the Pairs Gold Medal, largely due to Craig, not me. Craig was, unfortunately for him, put in a really awkward situation where he knew exactly the score he needed to shoot on the last round, and that's not a spot you want to be in. Uh, You know, I would have rather have done that than him, and he stood up and was counted and shot brilliantly in his last round, and it was the only Commonwealth Games gold medal I ever won was that one. You know, I married a woman that had won three of them and she reminded me of it all the time. And it was the only time I ever won a gold medal was there. And I really think Craig Trimbar should have got both gold medals that day, not me, even though I think we may have shot the same score, the, the pressure that young guy was put under. Um, it was one of the best rounds I've ever witnessed. And I was glad that I got to witness it at a range on my hometown. Yeah, uh, for... The team shooting, obviously, it's not a team sport where you fire the gun together or anything, but uh, what's the kind of dynamic of the whole event like in a team shooting competition uh, against an individual shooting competition? Yeah, it's an awkward one. Uh, They've changed the rules on teams competitions now because now you shoot with your partner in the teams competition at exactly the same time. But back then they just simply added the two scores together and it was unfortunate the drawing of when we got to shoot that Craig drew last. So that meant that he pretty much knew what score that he needed to shoot because my score was already posted and I think it was the Brits that we beat. It might have been the Indians or the Brits. It was one of the two, but their score was posted on the board already, and it's all electronic scoreboards. You know where you lie in the field, and Craig pretty much knew what he needed to do. And in our sport, that's hard. When you get a number in your head that you have to shoot, you generally shoot one less than it. You know, that's generally the same in golf. If you know you need to shoot a 73 to make the cut, you'll shoot 74. And in our sport, if you know you needed to shoot 47 to win, you'll shoot 46. Well, Craig shot 47 in some difficult conditions. And um, I, I felt for him, but, boy, it was a great effort. And it, it, it's hard because in the teams, when I can't help him. I'm standing 50 metres behind where he's shooting from. And I, I still regard it. And as I said, it was one of the best rounds I've ever seen anyone have to shoot. So with this Commonwealth Games being in Melbourne, did you hang around a little bit more? Um, it was an awkward time for me because we just had our first child um, f- with Lauren, my wife. She was obviously competing in the in the games, and um, 
Holly, the girl that was going to cash in my gold medal from the, for the BM, she was from my first marriage. But Lauren and I got married in 2004 and in 2005 uh, we had Sierra and we couldn't stay in the village. But for some stupid reason, the idiots that were running the, the scene at the time said we had to stay in the village. Well, I think Lauren was still breastfeeding and I just said, let me stay at home. I'll just drive to the range. And the bureaucracy in sport in Australia drives me crazy at times because some bureaucrat said, no, you've got to stay in the village. Well, I knew full well there were track and field athletes staying at the Sheraton Hotel. They weren't staying in the village. I said, what do you think I am? Uh, so I took them to task on it and we stayed at home. And the common sense prevailed. Perry Crosswhite, the CEO of the team, got involved and said, well, why does he have to stay in the village? You know, let him stay at home. And we, Lauren ended up winning a gold medal as well, so it was the right decision. But sometimes bureaucracy really frightens me because the, the, the goal of everybody is to try to get the best result for the team. The best result for the team is not having a husband and wife try and breastfeed a kid in the Commonwealth Games village. That's not smart. Um, but sometimes the rule book needs to be ripped up and sadly it wasn't the last time I faced that. Um, I faced that same dilemma six years later at the London Olympics when they said, well, no, you can't room with your wife. They wanted me to room with Michael Diamond. Well, you know, Mick and I have roomed together all our lives. Um, he couldn't have cared less who he roomed with. But, again, the bureaucrats get involved and say, no, you can't do that, even though I could name half a dozen other guys there that were staying with their wives in the team. But what do you do? You cop it on the chin, you deal with the cards you're given, I guess. Yeah, uh, with the, uh, that whole debacle in the Commonwealth Games and obviously the Commonwealth Games commonly viewed as their kind of little sibling uh, compared to the Olympics, did that or anything else kind of seem a bit amateurish? I just seem petty. Um, I, I find it hard to believe that any sporting coach or anyone else would want to do anything other than what's best for their athlete. But some of the people that get placed in these positions, it's their moment of glory as well. And I, I really struggle with it and I always have. I, I think the athletes come first and anything that you can do to get that athlete across the line is what you need to do. And I just hate seeing people get involved that really don't know how the sport works or what goes on in someone's mind on the, the day of a major competition because even though my Commonwealth Games record wasn't great, I mean, I won one gold medal and a couple of silver medals and I think a bronze medal, but... That might sound all right, but the Commonwealth Games really shouldn't be that hard to win. But for me, it was for some stupid reason. I know in, in Manchester, I shot a world record score that lasted for a second. The guy beside me then shot and then broke my world record and I come second. I just wasn't destined to win at the Commonwealth Games. Um, and to finally win that one, even though you say it's the, the poor cousin, yeah, in some ways it is, but Australians tend to hold it very high. And I sadly probably didn't, and my record reflected that. And I'm probably, in hindsight, should have paid more attention to it. In 98, I pulled out of the team. That's sadly how much it meant to me. I didn't even try and make it in the end. I just said, I'll take a job with Channel 9 as a commentator. And again, when I got there, I regretted it from the moment I got there and never, ever pulled out of another team. That was the last team I pulled out of was that one. Um, you only get one go at life and you try and make the most of it. And pulling out of teams, I thought, was a pretty stupid thing to do. 
So in uh, 2007, the IWSF voted you the greatest double trap shooter of all time. How did that feel to you? Yeah, that was probably the biggest honour I've ever had. They flew us all, uh, there were 10 of us, they flew us all into Munich for a special dinner and I wasn't made aware of it right till the very end. They'd kept it a secret, but, you know, you always wonder why do they want to fly you to Munich? You don't just fly to Munich to have dinner. But they made a big deal of it. And, yeah, to get that honour, um, it, it meant a lot for our sport. Obviously, for the people here in Australia, it meant a lot. I personally don't believe my record now it's over. I think there are other guys that equally did as good as I did, but... I guess if you put Olympic medals and world championship medals together, I probably won as much as anybody. But I looked at other people at the end of my career and there's a guy out of the United States called Glenn Eller who won the 2008 Olympic Games. Um, I probably thought he was a better shooter than I was, but that was a year later. They made this decision in 2007 and Glenn hadn't won an Olympics then, so he missed out on that award and I got it. So I remind him of that every time I speak to him. <laughs> yeah, um, so I think had a bit of a gradual decline over the next few years um, and didn't uh, place uh, in the next two Olympics that you competed in. But uh, was that just kind of your mind leaving the game or any passion going or what was the reason behind your eventual retirement? I think they call it old age. I think that's what they call it. I mean, I'm, I made the final in in Beijing and that probably defied all odds. I had to shoot off to get into the final and won the shoot off and I ended up coming fifth and Richard Folds, the guy who beat me in in uh, Sydney, finished sixth. So the two of us were probably on the way out back then. But to make an Olympic final, yeah, I mean, I was happy to get there. In London, I probably should never have gone. I was keeping people out of the team here in Australia by going to that Games. But as I just mentioned before, how do you make the Olympic team and then hand back the spot? You know, I regretted not trying out seriously for the 98 Commonwealth Games teams and here I was, you know, 12 years later or 14 years later, you don't hand back a spot. I knew it was never, ever going to go to the Rio Olympics, but um, I shouldn't have gone. I wasn't competitive. I think the last medal I won in World Cup competition was in in 2010 in uh, in China, I finished second over there at the World Cup and I made a final, I guess, in 2014 in Spain. But, uh, you know, I was never really a threat to winning events again in my mind after 96. I was, anything after that, I guess, was a bonus. So out of all your Olympics, um, excusing the gold medal, which one was your favourite to be at? I think Barcelona did the best job. I mean, I know people that went to Sydney will hate me saying that, but if you polled all the international athletes that went to the Olympics that sort of I went to, Barcelona was pretty unique. The village was pretty close to downtown. If there was one thing people complained about in Sydney was that the village was at the arse end of the world. It was miles away from Darling Harbour or anything that the people want to, once you finish, you want to go and, and mix with the locals. Well, there were no locals to mix with out of Parramatta, I can tell you. I mean, I felt comfortable having a gun because everyone else out there had one too. <laughs> you really needed a gun to walk around Parramatta in 2000, I can tell you. So at least I was safe. But um, I, I think that was the thing that held Sydney back a little bit. <laughs> I was joking. 
can't. <laughs> um, I thought Barcelona did a great job. Um, Atlanta, I left within hours of winning, I'd gone. I mean, I'd spent a lot of time in Atlanta prior to the 96 games and I think less than 12 hours after I won, I was in Hawaii and I spent a week there. That's how much I thought of Atlanta. It was terrible. Uh, but obviously I won it, so that part was good. Um, I thought even though I didn't compete in Athens, I thought for all the trouble they went through to, to get the Athens games up and going because there was tremendous financial and security problems, they did a good job. Um, Beijing, you know, they did a pretty good job. But by far the best one, sadly for me, was London. They, I, I hate saying that. I hope no one from Britain hears this, but they did a tremendous job. Um, they just ran everything like clockwork and it, it, you couldn't fold it. The weather was good. Everyone was prepared to be drowned every day and freezing cold and they had sunshine and no rain. And the Poms did a really good job. Um, now I take my hat off to them. Yeah, it just sounds like an awesome experience, even though it was your last one, sadly. But moving on from your shooting career, uh, during your career, you actually uh, had a very brief stint in politics before you quit the Liberal Party due to not believing in some of their policies. So can you talk to us briefly about that? Yeah, it's a tough time. Um, And one thing I didn't learn until I'd won the pre-selection for the Liberal Party in Ballarat was that a lot of the stuff you had to do, you had to toe the party line. And there was some of the stuff that they were doing that I wasn't really happy with. And I certainly wasn't happy with the member that I was going to replace. Um, I I didn't really think he was that sincere about it at all. And I made him very much aware of it. And in the end, I just couldn't work with him. And I quit not long before... um, the September 11 disaster, and that really changed things for the Liberal Party. They ended up winning that election. It was really on the back of what happened internationally. And um, even though I'm probably very non-political now, but one thing you need to be aware of, if you get involved in a party, you probably need to toe the party line, and I wasn't really happy with a lot of the things they were doing. And I, I found it very hard to be hypocritical. And in the end, it wasn't for me, and I was... I was very grateful I got out of it. Um, it, it, It's a tough line, but don't get me wrong, there are some very good politicians out there. Everyone likes to can them. I wouldn't want to be in politics at the moment. Imagine being in Parliament trying to to get your way through this COVID disaster. There's no right or wrong decision, I feel, but it's a necessary evil. I'm glad some people take it up. Some people take it up for the wrong reasons, and I found there were too many people in the parties that they were career politicians in the making. They really didn't have the skill set. They weren't successful in anything in their life, but they'd been involved in either the Liberal or the Labor Party long enough that they were planning to be the member of that seat. And they're not the people you want representing you. And I, I just found I just couldn't be that hypocritical to keep at it. So I was glad to give it up in the end. Would you mind telling us some of the stuff that you didn't agree with exactly? Uh, there were parts of even John Howard's gun legislation that I didn't agree with that went back to that. There were parts of Howard's legislation that I did agree with and parts that I found were very, very hypocritical for me as a shooter. I mean, there were parts of it that I think really held our sport back. And I was still competing back when I was actually going for the Liberal Party and it was very hard for me to front up with a firearm and use it for my sport and then have the Liberal Party policy at times trying to take some of their firearms off some of the competitors I was actually shooting against. And, you know, I I thought that was really very hard for me to 
to to cop. A lot of the immigration laws I wasn't happy with. I mean, they had very stringent laws back then on refugee status. And, okay, a lot of people hate what they classed as the boat people, but I'm a big believer in Australia needs to take a certain amount of refugees per year. It's how we live in a very lucky country and not every refugee that comes to Australia is bringing grief and misery. We've had a lot of refugees that have contributed to Australian society. And the Liberal Party got very tough on some of those laws and a lot of my friends um, were refugees and I found it very difficult to support some of those laws. But the Australian public voted for in favour of a lot of those laws. So, you know, I probably wouldn't have been the right representative. So on a little bit of a lighter note, you said you didn't become the full forward for Carlton, but you did become an ambassador for the club. How's that for you? I took over the ambassador's role in 96, um, the year after we won our last flag. So I'll tell you how it's gone. It's gone terribly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I'm a one-eyed Carlton supporter. We're going through a rebuilding process at the moment. We've been doing that since 2000, but we're nearly there. Some (laughs) of the people we're rebuilding with and now their sons are playing for the the originals. Um, We had signs this year that we were better, but... I think we could do better again. We've never recovered from losing Brendan Favola as our full forward. We've never really had a full forward since he left. So I reckon he'd still get a game as our full forward now if he come back. But who do you guys follow? Oh, I'm a Dons fan and Jackson's a Collingwood fan. So we've got a bit of rivalry <laughs> oh, here. God. How come you just didn't tell me that before? <laughs> Started today, a Collingwood and an Essendon supporter. My God, <laughs> See, it was going One well. Of us has played finals, but yeah, it was going well up until well now. This chat, so I don't know what's going yeah. on now. I should have guessed yours by the top you're wearing. I guess I was just sort of hoping red and black was the colour you picked out of your wardrobe this morning. I didn't realise you were doing that, but at least Collingwood, I guess, are in the finals. We're going to be watching it. I'm afraid, up. Yeah, geez. Essendon's last game of the season, just in a couple hours. Uh, we're recording this on a Saturday, in the last round of the season. And I can tell you what, Essendon's season has been a shocker on the most part. It's not been great. But uh, in terms of just general sport, uh, you're a sports commentator uh, in radio, the kind of ABC breakfast representative for sport uh, with Red Simons, I believe, and 3AW as well. So was a media career always some, something you wanted to get into? Yeah, I got involved by accident. Um, I went and did an interview one morning on um, 3AW on their breakfast show and the producer of the show got in touch with the station chief and said, this guy we had on the breakfast show that won the Olympics, um, he might be good for a Sunday sports show that they were planning on doing uh, the following season with Gary Lyon and Anthony Hudson. This is before anyone knew Hutto. He was still looking like a little boy back then. I mean, he looked about 14 years old. He only looks 17 now, but it was Hutto's start of his career as well, and we had Gary Lyon. Um, and, yeah, it went well. I spent four years at – five years at 3AW doing that show, and then Red Simon uh, started at the ABC, and I was getting sick of working on Sundays. It was a Sunday sports show. And Red offered me a job as doing their sport um, on his morning breakfast show. And I spent 13 years with Red, which I enjoyed that. And I really loved Red, obviously, one of the most intelligent men I've ever met. But I liked Red because Red 
always used to say to me before we went to air, I don't want to know what you're about to talk about. Just make it something that I can talk about. So he, he never wanted the football results. He wanted to know the story behind the results. And that's sort of how we survived for so long because no one just wants to hear the soccer results on the morning. They don't care what happened in the Premier League. They want to know why that guy got paid £150,000 and he kicked the ball offside five times. And that, that's why I really survived so long because I think I have a look at sport from a different angle than most people. And I think if you're going to survive for a time in it, you've got to have more than just the ability to read the results. You've got to understand how sport works. And I'm, I'm pretty lucky to say I've been able to understand that. And then you worked in the media team for Channel 7 on the uh, Rio Olympics and the 2018 Commonwealth Games. How was that for you? Yeah, well, by this time now, I should have finished doing the Tokyo one because I'm the commentator for them over there as well. But um, it's easy doing the commentary. It, I, I can't believe how slow and big the clay targets look when you're a commentator instead of shooting at them because I can't believe anyone ever misses them when you're a commentator because, um, yeah, it's. I, I guess I haven't got a lot of competition as to people that have probably got the experience that I've had in in the shooting sports. And I've really enjoyed the role at Seven because they give you a lot of freedom. Um, And I'm lucky also in a time where the Australian shooting team will provide a lot of medals for us. And you'll see that the the team they're going to send to Tokyo, they're going to win medals. And there's nothing worse than being a commentator in a sport that's got no hope of winning medals. Um, That's sad. uh, I've been lucky enough to be able to call gold medal victories. And that, that's a bit of a thrill also in sport to be able to do a Bruce McAvaney because it gets very special. <laughs> and I'm very, very happy to say that I look forward to doing that again in Tokyo if it ever happens. Yeah. Now, you've got so much stuff outside of your actual shooting career. You've got your business career and you're actually uh, one of the best shotgun coaches in the world. So uh, was coaching just something like you had to do it because you're one of the best uh, marksmen of all time. So why not get into coaching? Yeah, it's it's an odd thing because I've been coaching around the world now since the mid-90s. I was well before I won the Olympics. So I got jobs all over the world coaching because I think there are two types of people that shoot. There are people that understand how it works and there are people that don't want to understand how it works and they can be equally as good as each other. But I was one of the ones that do understand how it actually the mechanics of the sport work and people want to know the the ballistic data, the technical data of why and how you need to do things. So I, I started coaching, I, I think, in about 92, 93, and I've just about been everywhere around the world doing that. But at times I enjoy it and sometimes I hate it. You go to some of the countries where they get overly technical, and I won't name those countries, but some of them don't understand that sometimes it's the little man in your head that you've got to solve, not the type of gun you're shooting or the ammunition you're using. The answers generally aren't there, but in your technique, there are only certain things you can do, but to make people believe that they can do it is the hardest thing. So we recently started up an online coaching service based um, because everyone was locked down and it was the biggest mistake I ever made in my life biggest mistake because I didn't understand how popular it was going to be and within the day that we released it we just got inundated inundated from all over the world of people wanting online coaching analysis they send us three videos three photographs and some technical data on on their firearm and then we do an analysis of them and 
I massively underquoted. I I just thought, I will get a few, but we got inundated. And I didn't realise that coaching was so popular, and particularly from countries like Japan and India and and the Middle Eastern countries, that there are people over there that don't get coaches go there, but this was an avenue for them. Um, So I really wish I had have tripled the price. I I way underquoted what it was worth, but obviously I've honoured it. But there is a need in the world for coaches, and I just didn't understand until COVID hit how popular it was going to get. So uh, what is that website that you can plug right now? GoShooting.com.au. We've got an easy one, mate. Go Shooting. It's pretty hard to forget that one. And, you know, we've we've just done a series of interviews with the five best shooters of all time around the world. And, again, I was massively uh, surprised how popular that was. But in these COVID times where people can't do the things that they normally do, there was a market for this type of thing, exactly what we're doing today. It's born a whole new industry. And, you know, what you guys are doing is what I'm doing and it's what so many other people have gotten onto that, okay, they're sick of watching Netflix. They're sick of the crap on Foxtel and the free-to-air television. They want to actually see specialised things. And, you know, I, I understood that um, very quickly that through this um, COVID crisis, there is a different market out there. And um, I, I was glad that I've been part of it. But boy, I thought I was going to have a few months off, but it certainly hasn't gone that way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, we might get into some listener questions. And I can tell you, we got absolutely inundated with uh, lots of them because the shooting community absolutely loves you, mate. Uh, you're an absolute icon of the sport. And no, half of them after some free advice here. They don't want to take through online coach and they're going to get a review for free. I'm going to send you an invoice at the end of this. <laughs> well, uh, we might go to the first one. Uh, so this one is from Blair Caldwell. Uh, it's a pretty simple one. Did Beretta let you keep the gun you won with? Yeah, it's a good question. They did. They did. Um, at the end of my career in 2014, they um, the three main guns that I used were all, and this is get, it's a technical answer, but if you're not into firearms, this might not mean anything, but it will mean something to Blair. They, uh, the guns that I, I put on the map for them was an SO5 Beretta. They're a gun that's worth about $30,000 each. And by the end of my career, I'd just about ruined all of them. So Beretta took all of those guns back and they fixed them all up free of charge in the Beretta factory in Italy and sent them all back to me as a present. Um, and I've kept all of those in my gun safe at home and the gun that they made for me for winning the 96 Olympics was a $100,000 shotgun. That sits in the MCG Museum as well. That's a gun that I physically have not touched for 24 years. It's a gun that if I kept it in my gun safe at home, the annual insurance on it alone would be about $6,000 a year. So I gave it to the MCG for them to look after. So, yeah, I I did. I kept the whole lot. Uh, We have a question from Jace asking, uh, what's with such a high rib on the gun? Did you need a scaffold to look over the top of it? (laughs) It's another technical question. The event that I shoot is an event called Double Trap where you start your gun when you call pull for the target well above the roof of the trap where the target's going to appear. And those big high rib guns, like what you're referring there, it makes it really easy to see the target coming out from underneath the barrel. If you don't have those big high ribs, you don't see the target as clear. It's an awkward-looking gun. I personally hate the look of it. 
and I'm with him. I, I hate it as well. And the moment I finished Double Trap, I never, ever used a gun like that ever again. <laughs> Uh, now, this one's from Martin. It's a really good question. So he says, overcoming the first hurdle is the hardest, i.e. getting people to fire a gun. So how do we attract new participants to a wonderful sport that has the millstone of firearms? Yeah, it is a good question. Um, you've got to get them along to the range and get them to have the – you've got to get the fear of firearms out of it. And I think the easiest way – Go Shooting runs a very big corporate shooting business for bucks parties and things like that. And we've converted thousands of people that have come along to these corporate events into clay target shooters. The answer is to get them to hit a really easy clay target as quickly as possible once they've got the firearm in their hands. If they hit the first target they shoot at, they think they're going to the next Olympic Games. And that's they've, all of a sudden they've lost their fear of firearms. But... I make it really easy for them to start with. I don't take them to the Olympic range to do it because they'd spend all day there and never hit a target. But once they hit a target, they lose their fear no matter if you're a young girl or an old guy. Anyone can hit a clay target. But once they hit one, they seem to lose their fear of the firearm. And once they lose their fear, they treat the firearm as a piece of sporting equipment, not something that they may kill someone with. And I think that's the answer to your question. Get them to hit something quickly and they'll want to come back next week. They'll go and tell everyone they're going to the next Olympics because they hit the first clay target they shot at. And that's what you want them to think. You then introduce them to harder and harder events and then they might think, well, maybe it's a little bit harder, but take away their fear and you've got them. Uh, Brendan asks, would you ever come to small towns and sponsor one of your guns? I'd love to win that. I'm from Shepparton, Victoria, and my local range is a Namuka uh, oh, no, gun Nimurka. club. Nimurka. Nimurka. Um One of my guns is worth 30 grand. I don't like them at Numerka that much, I can tell you. <laughs> I think years ago, I may have shot at Shepparton. I may have shot at Shepparton. I don't think I've ever been to Numerka and shot, but... Maybe that was one of the clubs I went to when one of the kids beat me and it was in the New America Times on Monday that they flogged me and they're going to the next Olympics. Um, absolutely. I really enjoy going to the country clubs. Um, I do a lot of coaching still at some of these country areas and, you know, we get the most of the Australian team is from regional areas in Australia. They're not from the cities. Um, myself growing up in Ballarat is a good example of it. So the next Olympic shooter may very well be at Umerka Gun Club, but giving him a $30,000 gun to shoot for, don't like him that much. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you ever do want to go down to the Umerka Gun Club, that same guy, Brandon, uh, he says, I'd give that old-timer a run for his money. So uh, <laughs> up for a bit of a challenge there if you ever want it. Oh, God. Well, if I did go there and if he does beat me, as long as he doesn't put it in the local paper. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, we've got a very famous last segment. Uh, Jackson's well aware of what it is. Are you ready to go, Jackson? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, so, uh, Russell... Uh, we've got a last segment that we do on the show. Uh, I've put together a quiz and I'm going to be pitting you against Jackson. There are going to be five questions and they're yep. all vaguely related to your career, but very vaguely. Uh, so we'll start with question number one and your name is your buzzer. So uh, I want you to tell me which artist published their sixth sixth studio album in 1973 which went to number one in the usa and canada and was called 
don't shoot me. I'm only the piano player. Four. 1973. Don't shoot me. I'm only the piano player. No. No. Do, do you want to have a stab, Jackson or oh. Russell? Don't shoot me. It was his sixth album, you said. It was his sixth studio album, and it went to number one in the USA and Canada and some other countries as well. His sixth album. I thought you were going to say, I shot the sheriff. That would have been easy. It yeah, would have been I, know. I was very tempted to put that in, but I thought that might have been a bit too easy. I was hoping you were going to go down that road. No, I don't know. I don't, but I want to know now. Well, uh, Jackson, if you're not going to answer I'll, I'll take yet. a stab and just oh. say like Ray, Ray Charles. Ray Charles is incorrect. The answer is Elton John. Elton John. I just went to see him before COVID. Really? The yeah. last person I saw in public. I was yeah. up in Pops Arbor. I went to his concert, but he didn't sing that there. He hadn't uh, one at Amy Park that some of my mates went to as well. Apparently that was very good. But um, anyway, question two. So this one's closest to the pin. So Muhammad Ali, uh, previously known as Cassius Clay, uh, won his first world heavyweight boxing title when Sonny Liston failed to come out for round seven at the convention center on, uh, in Miami Beach on February 25 of which year? Russell, I'm going to have a stab. I'm going to have a stab. His first world title... Um, I'm going to say 1966. 1966 is incorrect, but it's closest to the pin. So, Jackson? Uh, 1971. Well, Russell's got the point because uh, it's on his birthday, I believe. February yeah, it 25, is. 1964. 64. Yes. I, I, knew he, I, I knew it was a February 25th, but I didn't realise it was exactly that day. Exactly. It was certainly in the 60s because he was famous for throwing his Olympic gold medal in the river. Yeah. He's the only person ever to get an exact replica of an Olympic gold medal awarded to him. Back. There you go. Wow. Uh, so question three. So are we both aware of what an anagram is? Yep. So uh, I'm going to give you three uh, uh, combinations of words, I suppose, and one of them isn't an anagram of your name, Russell Mark. So – uh, <laughs> the three uh, groups of words are the first one, mask rulers. The second one, Mr. Skull Ass, Mr. just MR, not Mr. the full spelling. And the third one, armless lurk. So you can write it down if you want. Mask rulers. Russell. Russell, go for it. One, number one. Number one, mask rulers is correct. He's got it. I've got Jackson covered. I've got him. I've got him. <laughs> Two nil up. But so you've uh, got one L in it, Mask uh, Rulers, one yeah. the girls. Exactly. Uh, and, yeah, the other one's Mr. Skullass and Armless Lurker and Anagrams. So, anyway. Fire uh, up, Jackson. Fire up, mate. <laughs> well, our last question, we, you can go for some extra points. So, uh, Jackson could still win it. But question four. So, Russell, you competed in six Olympic cities uh, in the Olympic Games. Seoul, Barcelona, Atlanta, Athens, Beijing, and London. Uh, in any order... What are the three most populated cities of those six? Jackson. Jackson. Um, London, Barcelona. No. Oh. London, Tokyo, Barcelona. It's incorrect. I didn't go to Tokyo, Jackson. I didn't go to Tokyo. Oh, Tokyo no. hasn't happened yet. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Russell? 
All right. Um, in population order, it's got to be. Just need the top three. Top three would be London. I'm going to go with Seoul as second because Seoul's a big city. Barcelona's not that big. Atlanta's big-ish. Uh, it's bigger, I think, than Sydney, Atlanta. I'm going to go Atlanta as third. Uh, well, you're missing a big one. It's not Atlanta. You got the other three right. The other one's Beijing. Oh, of course. With a population of 20.46 yeah, million. Yeah, yeah, how stupid. How yeah. stupid. But, yeah, it's, it's better than Tokyo, though, Jackson. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I'll do that. Had a shocker there. Uh, yeah, so anyway, in order, uh, from most popular to least populated, it's Beijing, Seoul, London, Barcelona, Atlanta, and Athens. Athens there you go. Three million. Seoul has got more than London. I knew Seoul was big, but I didn't realise it was that big. But yeah. I'd just forgotten Beijing. Big, big city. Anyway, uh, question number five, and our last question. Jackson can still win because our last question is a who am I question. So I did uh, start- come back last week. Just Oh, good. <laughs> Good, yeah. what a challenge. Out of the blue, actually. <laughs> they didn't even realise I'd get that one. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, for question – sorry, uh, I'll explain the who I might. So I'm going to start off at five points, go all the way down to one point with a series of clues, and once you've buzzed in and got it wrong, you can't buzz in again until the other person gets it wrong. So is that all clear? All right. All right. So we'll start off with the five-point clue. I was born on the 7th of September, 1533, in Greenwich, England. I'll move on, uh, unless either of you want to have a stab in the dark there. He hasn't got his phone Googling this, has he? Nah, All right. I hope not. All right. <laughs> we're on a very tight ship here at the Where Do We Begin yeah, quiz, so I don't want any cheating. Uh, for the four-point clue, during the reign of Mary I, I was imprisoned for nearly a year on suspicion of supporting Protestant rebels. I'm going to go Russell. Russell. Sir Isaac Newton. Sir Isaac Newton is incorrect, I'm afraid. You got a chance here, mate. Yeah, so uh, you need to get it on the three-point clue, this next clue, to win it outright. But if you get on the two-point clue, we'll go to a tie-break because it's 2-0. I'm correct in saying it's two. Yep. yep. All right. So for three points, on February 25th, 1570, Pope Pius V excommunicated me for heresy and persecution of English Catholics during my reign. Mate, I've got no clue. I don't know my history. Do, do you want to have a guess or should I move on to the two-point clue? Just move on. Just move on. Okay. So for two points, my mother was famously executed just two and a half years after my birth. Again, no clue. I, I reckon I have to give it to Russell, honestly. I, I don't even have a, an answer. Don't was, the mother, was the mother Mary, Queen of Scots? The mother was not Mary, Queen of Scots, but uh, for the one-point clue, uh, I'll open it back up to both of you since it's a dead rubber now. <laughs> uh, so for one point, I was England's monarch for 44 years and 127 days, the longest reign of any British woman at the time. The mother wasn't Mary, Queen of Scots. So I'll, I'll tell you, the mother was Anne Boleyn and the father was Henry VIII. 
Nah. Who was it? So uh, I got to should give you another clue. Uh, so yeah, there haven't been too many uh, female monarchs in the UK, but this one shares a name with another one. If Queen Elizabeth the first. Queen Elizabeth the first is actually absolutely correct. So no points though. God, I'm glad you put me up Jackson on a history question. <laughs> he stitched me up here. Yeah. <laughs> Good job, guys. Good job. Thank you very much. Uh, So Russell's won at 3-0. That's a very good win by him. Highlight of his career, no doubt. No Uh, doubt. It will go down. Do I get a medal? Uh, Yeah, we'll send it right out to you uh, as soon as we can. Or might even deliver it in person as soon as lockdown ends. But anyway, we've been going on a while. So I've got to thank you very much, Russell Mark, for coming on the show. It's been great. No worry. If I hadn't known you were an Essendon Collingwood supporter, I wouldn't have come, but I appreciate the time. Thanks. Guys, what did I say? I told you in the intro that it would be a cracking episode, and boy, did it turn out that way. Russell Mark, great guy, great sportsman, obviously, and I think that just made for a great interview. And I think most people will agree with me. And if you are one of those agreeers, Go leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast because that's how we spread the podcast around and we just get better that way and we'd hugely appreciate it. But we'd appreciate it even more if you could do us a big, big favor. Uh, did you know that the number one way that podcasts actually spread around is by word of mouth? Wow, who knew? But anyway, if you'd like to help us out, go tell some mates about this podcast because that would just be absolutely awesome for us. And you can go recommend us on the socials. You can check us out on the socials at WDWBpod on Instagram and Twitter. Or where do we begin on Facebook? You can check out all the other things you need to in the uh, description of this episode. It has actually been a pretty long episode thinking about it, even though it was a really good episode. And as always, we like to finish the show with a nice bit of music. We've got a song uh, today by Matt Gakovic, uh, or also known as Passero. Uh, so he's describes himself as just a 22-year-old lo-fi bedroom pop artist from down here in Melbourne, and his music is a bit of a mixture of the lo-fi beats and a bit of 80s synth nostalgia, and of course, it's got some lovely jazz-inspired harmony. Uh, And you can check out Matt uh, on the socials at Passero, or Instagram especially, that would be a good one, or check him out on Spotify. He's got a couple new singles. Uh, The one we're playing today on the show is called Malibu. Uh, So thanks so much for listening to this episode. We'll see you next week. And here it is, Malibu by Passero. Scared.